0: Well, as we turn our attention to God's Word and for our sermon this morning, um, let me say this. This is actually week eight of a series that I've shared with you um, through the course of time. Not in eight weeks. It's probably been over the course of about 12 weeks when I've, I've preached. But we're doing a series called Something Worth Singing About. And we're looking at the Gospel and the truths and beauties of the gospel as they're revealed in our hymns. That hymns are more than nice-sounding tunes. They are truth put to music that becomes a blessing to God's people. When we sing together and worship corporately, and even when we go into the work week alone, they help to hide God's Word in our heart. And I've said they help to make truth portable that truth goes with us, even when we may need it most. Uh, When hard times come, when suffering comes, when we're jolted by bad news, sometimes it's the truth of a hymn that may come to our mind first and minister to us, or to give us words to speak to others in a time of need. When those words are biblical, when they are gospel truths that we can share, suddenly the hymns we've sung and what we've learned in the way of music becomes a way of arming ourselves for life in a fallen world. So this morning we're continuing in the series and I've got to be honest and say this morning is a heavy subject. This morning is not a lighthearted topic at all, but it is a very honest talk about the real Christian life and I want to introduce it in this in this way when I graduated from college I have a memory uh, when I went off to my first job I worked in a church outside of Atlanta Georgia as a youth director as a young single person learning to keep house and pay bills by myself for the first time and I remember getting a phone call and these were common phone calls back then this was in the, uh, in the early 90s, and it was AT&T calling, the long-distance phone company. And they essentially said, have we got a deal for you. If you will transfer to our company, change your long-distance membership, whatever it was called, you'll get 10 cents a minute on a long-distance call. And all the young folks uh, hearing this are like long-distance phone calls and charges and 10 cents a minute. We have cell phones. So we did not have cell phones. But I remember, this is what happened to me on that occasion, and it still surfaces in, in different ways now with DirecTV and TV. Different companies play the same game. They offer you 10 cents a minute. And this young college grad said, that's great, what a deal, I'll take it. And then what they hope is that you won't t- pay attention to the bill. 30 days later because in the fine print and what's which they did not mention is that it's 10 cents a minute for the first 30 days after 30 days they jack it up to 30 cents a minute and if you don't pay attention to your bill and most people don't this will skip right by most people and you end up paying them exactly what they wanted all along and this is deception This is the art of deception, and this is not telling the whole truth, right? So this morning, uh, I I use that illustration to set it up in this way, what we're going to address. There is an easy believism in our culture. It can be very popular in American ministries where we tell people partial truths about the gospel, and what it is to know the Lord and to be saved, but to hold back and maybe not tell the whole story of what Jesus says is the cost of discipleship. So this morning, in in an effort to to be fully honest, and speaking of the Gospel and the good news and the story of redemption that God offers us, we're going to address suffering in the Christian life because we were told to expect it. And we've been prepared for it. And to not address a heavy subject like this, well, it would be to tell a partial truth. So let's look at the full truth of the full gospel and find, I trust, an even deeper beauty and meaning to what God has offered us in Himself. We have several passages we'll hear this morning, but we'll begin. The primary text will be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. Give your attention to God's Word and then we'll pray. are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now we could stop there and that would be part of the story. But let's continue to hear what Peter says. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, would You open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might see the truth and beauty of the Gospel, that we might be equipped and encouraged with the truth of the gospel, and that, Lord, we would be prepared for when suffering comes. And we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was a student at Clemson University, something I'm very proud of. I spent five glorious years at Clemson University, but that's another illustration for another day. But while I was at Clemson, like most students, I quickly learned the difference between taking an elective and taking a required course that was a part of the core curriculum. And there is a big difference between these two things. So those of you who have done this or those of you who are preparing to do this, Those electives are exactly what they sound like. You get to elect yourself. You get to choose for yourself what class you're going to take. You get to pick from a list of approved classes. Core curriculum, there's no choices to be made here. This is given to you. This is a part of what it will mean to be a graduate of that university in that major. So back to the electives. This is what we like right here, right? The electives you get to choose courses according to your preferences. And as I got to the end of those five glorious years at Clemson University, and as I got to be able to take electives, the two courses that I chose to take my senior year were a women's studies class on feminism. I was the only guy in that class, and um, They didn't like me very much. (laughs) I don't know why. I enjoyed the class very much. But the second class that I took was an ice cream tasting class at Clemson University. There are benefits to going to an agricultural school. And so um, remember the opening illustration about partial truth and whole truth and advertising. So when you take a class, when you sign up for an elective called ice cream tasting class, one would think you would be tasting a lot of ice cream. The truth is we didn't taste any ice cream until the last week of class. Uh, We were kind of one with a sales pitch that wasn't quite true. Same illustration as before. You will have your own experience or you have had your own experience with taking electives versus having to take core curriculum the nuts and bolts of your education that, that cannot be opted out of. Suffering in the Christian life, perseverance in the Christian life is not an elective. It's a part of the core curriculum. The Scriptures prepare us for this. Old Testament and New. But there's something about each of us and the easy believism of our day and of our own hearts that just wants to believe that somehow we can get through things in this life unscathed and untouched by hardship, suffering, disease, diagnosis, death, whether our own or those that we love, injury, calamity, crisis, conflict. Broken relationships. Somehow we have been very naive in our understanding of the sinfulness of our own hearts and the sinfulness of the world in which we live, and that there will be suffering, and that that suffering has a purpose in the Christian life. And there is great comfort in knowing that there is a purpose for what you are living through. When we look to the goodness of God and have confidence that He is the author of our stories, our own stories, then we can know that there is purpose in whatever we're living through, and that is part of the great joy that we'll see in our passage passages this morning. One of those is from James chapter one, verses two through four, which you already heard. Uh, I believe it was the reflection uh, prior to the call to worship. Listen again to James chapter one, verses two through four. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so you see, our suffering our trials have a purpose god is using them to mature us to transform us to change us and from this perspective in life we never can fully see know or understand why why you have lived through some of the very difficult and hard things that you may maybe have lived through in your life already or things that are yet to come we're not given answers now but we're given confidence that God is at work and He's using it for your good. God is using it purposefully for your good. And then secondly, this sanctification, this work of God in shaping us and transforming us, the biblical word sanctification that we've looked at before, sanctification is often by fire. Sanctification brings Heat, to mold us, to transform us. Listen again to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In all of this, and all your sufferings, you excuse me, in all of this goodness of God, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." God is the user of fire to refine His people, to refine our faith, to refine our hearts. But our suffering has a purpose and sanctification tends to be by fire. My first application and question for you is this. Do you have a category for this? Do you expect this? Do you expect suffering and hardship? And do you have confidence that when the phone rings with bad news, and it will, can you have confidence in that moment that God is at work, He is sovereign and He is good, and it may be horrible to experience and live through that suffering? But it can be well with your soul. You can know that that God will prove Himself faithful in the end. That is exactly what the Scriptures are preparing us for. That's the whole story, the full story. C.S. Lewis has a quote from The Problem of Pain, one of his books. He says, We can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but He shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So God is at work using pain, suffering, hardship, and trial. He's using those for our good. Can you trust Him? with whatever suffering or trial or hardship you're in the midst of, or that is behind you in your history, or that may yet be before you in your future. The Scriptures prepare us by faith to persevere when it comes. Second point this morning on this subject, when suffering and hardship come, Not all will persist and endure in the faith. And this is where the sermon suddenly takes a second step into the seriousness and the weightiness of what we're prepared for to experience in this life. When suffering and hardship come, not everyone will persist in the faith. It is a warning given to us in Scripture. And the Word biblically and theologically, is apostasy. Apostasy. Apostasy is exactly what that picture looks like. The definition of apostasy in its simplest terms is the hardening of the heart and the willfully walking away from the faith. That is what it is to apostatize or to be an apostate. It is to say, I may have grown up in this, but I'm walking away. Maybe suffering and hardship is the cause of that. Maybe the love of pleasure and sin is the cause of that. But it's always coming from the hardness of one's heart. And the honest and full picture of Scripture is this. Our family history, our spiritual family history that we all share, our family tree is filled with apostasy. Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, are one example of how the the heart hardens so quickly. This is after the spies have been sent out into the land, and they've gone and seen that God's promises of this land are true. The grapes are huge. The abundance of God's promises is proven, but there were giants in the land. There's a hurdle to have to be crossed. And so they come back with a report, a report that is both positive and negative, that, hey, it's, it's just like God said it would be, but we saw something that we, we can't deal with. And there was no category for the Lord proving Himself faithful even over those hurdles. It was, we will, we will spin a bad report on this land. We do not want to have to go fight. We do not want to have to encounter this hardship and this suffering. And that is what happens in Numbers 14, 1 through 4. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept out loud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, God's appointed leaders, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And that is what the beginning of apostasy sounds like. God's not going to be faithful to His promises. He must not have known there were giants in the land. We've got to solve this problem ourselves. And if our leaders want us to obey God and His Word, then we need new leaders. That's literally what's happening here. And we should be jolted by this because, as I said, this is our family history. This is our spiritual family history. And it can be true of any of us. And the Scriptures tell us to guard our hearts, to watch our hearts, lest they prove to be sinful and unbelieving. This is the Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 passage we've heard. Let me read that again. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Apostasy. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And there we see the conditionality of God's covenant, of His promise. You must persevere in the faith. Don't take His promises lightly and your obligation to walk with the Lord, to remain in Him. And so I summarize this in my own terms. As beware the sinful, hardened, shrinky dink heart. Now, why do I say that? Well, because in Hebrews chapter 10, we said, it's what we heard earlier, is that we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we push forward with perseverance and are saved. The Lord says in the Old Testament, He does not delight in the one who shrinks back. And so literally the image here is, don't let your heart shrink. Don't let your heart harden against the Lord. Now, I'm a child of the 80s. I was 10 years old in 1980. And on my 10th birthday, I remember what I got for my birthday. I got shrinky dinks. And some of you maybe remember Shrinky Dinks. I think they still make them and sell them. But they were, it was this little artwork, this little craft project of thin plastic. And you would decorate it, color it, paint it, put it in the oven, in the heat of the oven, and it would do two things. It would shrinken, and it would harden. It would shrink and it would harden. And here we're told, don't let your heart shrink. Don't let your hearts harden. Beware the shrinky-dink heart. And so what this requires of us, quite simply, is this. Routine heart examinations. Everybody needs to have a routine heart examination. So says my cardiologist. But spiritually, we need to have routine heart examinations. You've got to consider your own personal heart, your own faith and how it is responding to the Lord, especially when hardship and suffering comes or when things don't go your way. Is your heart clenching like a fist, angry at the Lord? Do you find yourself just kind of wanting to get away from God's people? You know, I think I'm just not going to... Well, none of us is really going to church right now, I guess. Um, I'm not going to tune into church and watch it on YouTube. My my heart's just hard. This is why things like small groups exist. Remember what it said in Hebrews 10, continue to encourage one another, right? Small groups, great for this. One-on-one friendships, your Christian friendships. These ought to be places where you can have conversation about your own heart or at least be given opportunity to examine your heart and be able to say, how am I really doing? Am I in a season where my heart is softening or hardening? Because the truth is, one of those two things is always happening for each of us. Is your heart softening or is it hardening? The author of Hebrews speaks this sobering caution to us to see to it that your heart is not hardening, it's not sinful, that it's not a shrinky-dink heart. Third point and last point. When crisis does come into your life, when hardship comes, when suffering comes, when misery comes, when disappointment comes, what will you do? Or what have you done? What is the response of your heart? The truth is, this heart examination and this kind of test is not one that you can fake. There is no faking answers on this final exam. I used to joke with my Erskine students, um, every student, truth is, every student from high school on really learns how to fake it. They learn what their professor wants. If they're writing a paper, you've had a semester to get to know, okay, this is what that professor seems to really like. I'm going to write this reflection paper to try to scratch their itch, right? You know, the book you assigned to us changed my life, right? We'll, We'll just go over the top with this giving them what they want. We're faking it in that way. But you cannot fake, you cannot pass by faking a a heart examination in the way that the Lord is going to do it with suffering and with trial. Suffering and hardship and trial will expose each of us for who we really are and whether or not there is a genuine faith in our hearts. Your faith is either proved genuine and is transformed or it's not. And so the hard question for us, the application is, are you for real? Is your faith real? And that's what the Scriptures are encouraging us to ask in all of these passages. Is your faith real? Have you been transformed? Have you been changed? How have you responded to hardship and trial when it has come? You know, there's no illustration that exceeds the Bible's own Example of this in the person, the life, the work of Job in the Old Testament. And what was found to be in his heart when he faced the most cataclysmic experience in losing everything that he had and almost everyone that he loved. If you don't know the story of Job, I commend it to you. Very quick summary of chapter 1 tells us that Job was a blessed man in the earth. Think of someone that you know who just seems to have it all together and everything goes wonderfully for them. Uh, Job was said to be blameless and upright, that he feared God and he shunned evil. That's to say, he is a good man. Everybody likes Job. He's just a good guy and he honors the Lord. And he was blessed by the Lord. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a lot of servants. That's what it says in chapter 1. And Satan comes before the Lord and says, Have you considered your servant Job? Basically, Satan argues that I don't think Job loves you, God. I think that Job loves the things that you give him. And if you take away those things, he'll curse you to your face. He doesn't like you. He just, he just likes the things you give him. Now that is a pro, as profound an insult to the holy God as you can ever make. Think of it like this. If, if, you're a, if you're a parent, imagine someone coming up to you and saying, you know, your kids don't really like you. They tolerate you. They, just, they love the stuff you give them. They love the room they have, the bed they have, the car they drive, but they don't like you. There's not a greater insult that can be made to a loving parent. And that's what Satan says to the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, don't lay a hand on him, but you can take these things from him in your own way. And here's what happens. I call this, here come the sea billows a-rolling on Job's life. Here they come. This is what it says in chapter 1. As Satan is allowed to touch and bring hardship and suffering into Job's life, it says a messenger ran up to Job and said, "'Those oxen, they were plowing, and the donkeys, they were grazing. But the Sabaeans attacked, and they made off with all of them. And they put your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you.' And while he was still speaking, another messenger came up and said, The fire of God has fallen from the heavens, and it burned up all your sheep and all your servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties. They swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking... Yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one to tell you. And at this, Job got up and tore his robe, he shaved his head, And he fell to the ground in worship and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and now the Lord's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so Job hit with bad news after bad news after bad news like crashing waves like sea billows pounding him, pounding him, pounding him. At the end of that, and in this moment, he says, Well, I came into this world with nothing, so I guess it's fair to leave this world with nothing. A profound statement of faith, of trust, that God is sovereign and he's ultimately good, and that He would not abandon Job. Powerful story in the Old Testament to prepare us that in this world there will be suffering and hardship, but we are not left alone to endure. We are called to persevere in faith and trust in the living God. And that brings us to our closing hymn, which ties all of this together in its own beautiful way. This is a story that many of you already know. This is one of those popular hymns. Everybody loves this hymn. You can go to the store and, and buy a t shirt that says, It is well, dot, dot, dot. Right? It's become culturally popular. I don't have a problem with that. Let's just make sure we know the truth behind it and why it's so beautiful. It's the story of Horatio Spafford from the 1800s. And I'll tell it as, as quickly as I can and, and to get the point across. But Horatio Spafford was born in New York, but his life was really lived in Chicago in the mid-1800s. Uh, he was a wealthy man. He was a strong, fervent Christian man married to a strong and fervent Christian woman named Anna. Anna. As a wealthy man, he owned a lot of property, a lot of land in Chicago. In 1871, uh, they had just lost their first child whom they had named Horatio, little Horatio. He died at age four from scarlet fever. That is the first touch of deep pain that he and his marriage and his family would know. But two years after that in 1871, no, one year after that in 1871, Uh, The great Chicago fire would destroy much of that city and much human life and, and many of his possessions. So he took a huge financial loss, a huge financial hit, with this calamity that hit him like a sea billow. He spent the next two years with his wife using his wealth to minister to the city of Chicago to help in rebuilding and in helping families. In the midst of that suffering and hardship, he... He was the church. He was a faithful Christian. And after two hard years of serving and doing and trying to get life back to normal, he said, you know what, it's time for a vacation. Let's go overseas. Let's go to England. D.L. Moody, an evangelist who was a close friend of his, was going to be preaching there. He said, let's go spend some time in England, catch up with our friend D.L. Moody, hear him preach. Just heal a little bit. Right? We understand that. Well, at the last minute before they were to leave, some business, some urgent business, had him have to stay. And so he sent his wife and his four little girls. That's who was remaining after the loss of the one child. He had an 11-year-old girl, a 9-year-old girl, a 5-year-old girl, and a 2-year-old girl. And so he put them on the ship and he sent them off to England with his wife, Anna. And on their journey, their steamship would collide with an iron boat, and it said that the boat sank in 12 minutes, which I'm told and understand is really fast for this kind of accident at sea. His wife survived. His four girls all drowned. And when she was rescued, she sent a telegram back to him that simply said, Saved alone. Which was to say our four girls are gone. He did what you would expect him to do. He immediately rushed to his wife, trying to get to her overseas as quickly as he could. And while he was on a ship, going to the same location where his wife was, as he passed over the coordinates where the shipwreck had happened, the captain said to him, this is the spot. This is where your family went down. Imagine hearing that and knowing that this is where your four daughters would perish. It says this. These are some recordings from that time. It says, Horatio's faith in God... Never faltered. He would later write Anna's half sister that when he passed over the spot where she went down in mid ocean, the waters were three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones as being there. They are safe, they are dear lambs. A reference to the Good Shepherd. Later, of his wife Anna, it would be said that she had been heard to say, God gave me four daughters, and now they've been taken from me. Someday I may understand why. And later, she remembered something a friend had once said, that it's easy to be grateful and good when you have so much, but take care that you are not a fair-weather friend to God. She seems to understand and he seems to understand that suffering and hardship are core curricula in the Christian life. But we can trust God and His goodness even when times are horrible. When you live through the worst tragedy you could imagine, faith can persevere. Faith can persist. And it's not like we get over that hurdle and we're home free and we'll never be touched by, by pain or suffering again. And unfortunately, their life reflects that yet again. After all of this would happen to him and they had lost all of their children, they would have another child, a little boy that they would name again Horatio, who, like the first son named Horatio, would die at age four. Finally, they reached the point in their life and their marriage where they concluded. Imagine this, they concluded, let's go serve the Lord overseas. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's minister to the Jews who do not know our Jesus as we know Him. And let's minister to Muslims too. And they would go and they would spend the rest of their lives and their their ministry serving as missionaries to Jerusalem. Horatio would die only eight years later. She would continue to live there and serve for many more years. But I say, I tell you that. It's a long story. I apologize for that. But you cannot sing this hymn and understand the beauty until you understand the pain that was experienced before it. There is a calmness when we know the gospel that can bring calmness into the midst of the furious storms of life. And that is exactly what this hymn is about. As we sing it, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing it. We'll close with it. Uh, But pay attention to the first stanza. When peace like a river attendeth my way, that is to say, when things are great, when life is peaceful and good, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, when life is furious, when it's hard, Whatever my lot, be it calm or be it furious, be it peaceful or be it a storm, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. I will be okay because I am in the hands of a loving Father. That is the gospel. That is the whole story, the true story of the Christian life. Hard times will come. But our Heavenly Father, our Good Shepherd, will never abandon us, nor will He forsake us. Let's pray and then let's sing. Our Father and our God, we give You thanks for the honesty of Scripture to tell us the whole story of what to expect in a fallen world. And Lord, if some of us are hearing this for the first time, Lord, would You use it to cause us to do a heart exam, to look and see how we've responded to hardship and suffering, or even when we just don't get our way in this life, when our stories don't unfold the way we had thought they would. Lord, would You deal with us tenderly? Would You be gracious and kind? Would You grow that faith in us that we might withstand and persevere by faith, regardless of the storm, regardless of the sea billows that strike us, Lord, be near to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.